Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the coverage of abortion. So since the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, there's been a lot of focus on what this means for women, what this means for for the political debate around abortion, what this means for where the story goes next in, in various state approaches and different state legislation. There hasn't been a lot of thought about how the coverage of abortion has evolved or not evolved and what role it might have in leading us where we are today. Rebecca Traster is a writer at large at New York Magazine and The Cut. And at the end of June, she wrote a piece called The Abortion Stories We Didn't Tell, How Decades of Silence Left Us Unprepared for the Post-Roe Fight. She's very critical of the media coverage of abortion. She's critical of the Democratic Party and how they've framed these issues. And she's very critical of the lack of imagination in terms of how do we think about abortion storytelling in this country. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. I'm happy to be here. So I, I, I thought this piece that you uh, wrote for The Cut um, at the end of June was 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 brilliant and was really interested in your thoughts about the role of the failures of the press um, that sort of got us where we are. I mean, you you talk, uh, there's a line here, that the line that stood out was you say, the smug incuriosity of the mainstream American media has played a role in the absence of abortion stories. Um, and I thought that was so intriguing. Can you break that down a little bit? Like every word there is super interesting to me, starting with smug. <laughs> um, what, what do you what do you mean by that? What 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 causes that? Right. Well, so I think that my view is informed as a person as a member of the uh, mainstream media for I mean relatively mainstream media for almost twenty years at this point. Right. I, you know, I have I have so many thoughts about this because I am somebody I, I am not an abortion beat reporter. My beat is so broad and has been for as long as I have sort of begun to build it, which is to say that I write about um, politics, media, um, popular culture, um, and movements, social movements from a feminist perspective. And that's like, that's so broad that it's not like I've been on the ground reporting in abortion clinics, say, um, for the past 20 years, but I have been regularly writing about abortion from a million different perspectives, you know, all kinds of different stories, political analysis, you know, analysis of the Tea Party in, in 2011, analysis of the reproductive rights and justice movement, really starting that I began in 2004, 2005, when I was writing for Salon. Um, I have written for the New Republic um, a story when I was pregnant with my second child about the abortion stories in my own family. Uh, you know, so I, I've taken all these at various moments, though I am not an abortion beat reporter. I am somebody who has written about abortion. And so I've had this first hand experience with what it is like to be a person covering abortion at mainstream outlets. Um, and I have found again and again, and perhaps this perspective is informed by the fact that I also cover other things, like I write profiles of political candidates, and I write opinion pieces, and I, you know, I, I write about figures in pop culture and entertainment. Um, the people, the way that abortion, my abortion writing, 
has been treated up until the past, you know, two months, six months, has been with a total lack of interest, which is to say I've gotten to publish it, right? But I'm a person who, for example, is regularly asked to come on television as a sort of talking head. And I can tell you that I am never asked to come on television or very often go on the radio to talk about the stories I write about abortion, even though, as should be abundantly clear at this point, um, you know, there's no way to talk about politics and even even sort of horse race beltway politics in this country without acknowledging the role of the judiciary and questions of abortions, legality and criminalization. That's always been a part of the story. And yet nobody's been interested in hearing about that. And that's from the political standpoint. Then there's the secondary thing, which is, and this is what this particular column is more about, which is abortion stories. Now I write in that column about how that, you know, the, the, the incuriosity or the, a failure to tell or listen to varied abortion stories has plagued not, it's not just the media that's also been internal within a reproductive rights movement. Right. So but the, the smug and curiosity that you're asking about, there is such, and, and I found this within the institutions where I've written about abortion, there has been such distaste for stories about abortion. And I'm talking about, you know, in some cases from editors, right? And, I, and I've, over the years, as I've accrued a degree of seniority and I get to write stories that I want to write in a way that a lot of people m might have less power to do, I get to write those stories. But I also am deeply aware of how they're received, you know, internally and externally. And so... Um, and there's also seeing what's around us as somebody who, because of my political writing, um, and who has covered a lot of the policy stuff around this, even though I'm not an abortion beat, beat reporter has, has known and at various points attempted to address in my own coverage, the number of people who've been denied abortion care, for example, under Roe. And there has never been an appetite for those kinds of stories in the press. What's more, those of us, and again here, I just want to credit people who are writing about these issues with far more frequency and in far greater depth than I myself have. There are a lot of people who have been on this beat in a deeply serious way and on the ground in a way that I simply haven't been, right? But the absolute conviction that this subject, that the, the question of access to abortion care was settled, persisted, I'm going to say, up through the oral arguments in Dobbs. And I should say that that was, in my mind, one of the very first times that I was asked by multiple uh, television and radio outlets to come and talk about something I wrote about abortion was in December of 2021, after the oral arguments in Dobbs, when, by the way, it was a done deal. So do you, how much of the this reluctance that you're talking about on the part of the press and this kind of, I don't know, even if ambivalence is too soft of a word, mm. um, has to do with the racial, gender, and 
economic profile of most of the people in the mainstream media. If most of these decision makers were not men, not white, and not privileged, would we be having a different conversation? Of course we would be. There has been such a there, there is such a false sense of insulation um, for a for for middle and upper class white America, and this is this is not just about abortion, um, but the press, the mainstream press that draws almost entirely on those populations of people who have have by a lot of means remained very insulated um, from the real inequities and injustices that are endemic to this country um, and to the, the consequences of bad policy making that they may be covering in a kind of beltway distanced way, but, but they're not uh, the, the populations from which the press draws its leadership and a lot of too much of its staff um, aren't experiencing the lived reality so that people have been unable to get abortion care that they need in ever greater numbers ever since the late 70s and the passage of the Hyde Amendment, which said that that people who rely on state state uh, insurance programs can't use that insurance money to pay for abortion care. That left abortion inaccessible to poor people in the United States who are disproportionately more likely to be black, brown, immigrant, rural, young, and therefore also least likely to be the members of the mainstream American press. Um, And again, there have been people trying to tell the stories of that inaccessibility of care, the impact that it has on people who haven't been able to get abortion access, just as there have been people on the ground running abortion funds for years and also through the ramp up through the, the, um, you know, the 2010 ascension of the tea party, um, and this, what what began a decade's worth of increasingly terrible and restrictive state laws that made abortion ever more inaccessible to millions more people, um, you know, I, I there have been lots of attempts to try to tell those stories, not just about the laws, but of the people that they were having an impact on. But there hasn't, there just hasn't been a market for trying to tell those stories. I mean, I, I have many colleagues who've been working on this, either in that granular, they're on this beat capacity, or like me, as generalists who are all too aware of of these stories taking place. And we all share stories with each other about the fights we've had internally to get those stories told. So you draw a line between the press coverage and what you call the caginess of the Democratic Party um, in how it itself talks about Abortion. You said the the, uh, the the party casts abortion as some dolorous outcome, rather than a cornerstone of reproductive health care, economic and familial well being, and therefore equality itself. And then you say something which I really found fascinating, which was that the whole, the whole reproductive rights movement hasn't figured out um, what our relationship is to abortion storytelling, um, and I has and that that. I thought when I read that you were looking back on that have having been a problem now though, where we are now, what is, what is this, uh, what is the way to tell these stories now? Well, one of the issues is there's not one way to tell these stories because they are in fact stories about human beings. And there are so many varieties of human beings and so many varieties of human stories and so many varieties of reproductive health stories um, that I think one of the problems 
that a mainstream press that always wants to find the path forward, like a single path forward or a single framework for a certain kind of storytelling. Um, one of the great losses, and this is what I was trying to express in that piece, is that we do not have the um, what what Michelle Goodwin, who's brilliant on this, calls in that piece the um, the archive. The the we don't have any sense of the variety of human experience with regard to abortion, and we're and we're coming into this next period, um, and this is a point that Renee Bracy Sherman makes very brilliantly in that column, we're coming into this next period, first of all, unequipped with these decades of, you know, of that archive that would have told us this variety of stories um, that could have deepened and enriched our understanding of who needs abortion care, why, under what circumstances, and all the millions of ways people might feel about it or experience it. We're coming in unarmed with that archive and also moving into a period in which the abortion storytelling itself becomes perilous, becomes dangerous, um, in which criminalization means that that your abortion storytelling, instead of being used to um, to help make the case for like the basic human right in in question, can actually be used against you, can can serve as literal testimony in in a criminal context, and that's a very scary moment for for of certainly those who require abortion care, who want to tell their stories of, of having received it or having been denied it, um, and for those in the press who are going to be required to cover it. And I think that members of the press who have not paid enough attention to these questions until now um, are going to be faced with a lot of complicated, complicated challenges and questions in terms of how to safely tell these kinds of stories and responsibly. That's just another way then. So what worries you now? Uh, in terms oh. of pre no no in terms of press coverage what are you looking like what are you worried that reporters who haven't been covering this who have no um, background what what are you worried they may fall into or or how how do you do you have a specific fear in mind I have a lot of specific fears in mind so the first is actually this question of how the storytelling itself can be used against the people in question right we. Um, and that is a question facing a lot of us. And, and because the law right now and for the foreseeable future is going to be so complex and jumbled, right? This is, it wasn't like Roe is overturned. Now this is the law of the land. Every state is in, is in constant flux and chaos. And even those who have been preparing for this eventuality for decades are not like in a position, we don't know what the laws are going to be. Um, you know, an anti-abortion right wing is working very, very hard to, you know, to begin to be able to criminalize things like interstate travel, um, you know, medication abortion by mail, the questions of whether you can retroactively prosecute somebody who has had an abortion or sought abortion care earlier. These are all very open questions and there's not one legal answer. So that presents a set of real challenges for journalists who haven't thought about this and even for journalists who have thought about this, right? How do you protect your sources when you want to tell those stories? So that's an actual question of criminality and, um, and laws that are changing in front of our eyes while we're in the midst of telling this story and that we are very ill-equipped to navigate. The second question is sort of, and we can already see this unfolding, there are all kinds of bigger questions about which kinds of stories 
a press will now focus on. And there is an immediate impulse, and you can already see it in the in the reporting on, for example, the, and I don't even know if this story has been confirmed. It's very complicated. Here's an example of how these things are really complicated. The 10-year-old girl who was reported to have been raped and, and needed ob abortion care in Ohio, which she couldn't get, and thus traveled to Indiana. Um, I've seen already reporting on that reporting. How do you confirm these stories in a way that's safe and doesn't violate, um, you know, HIPAA? stuff and also where you can confirm that they actually happened those are those are big sort of reporting and journalistic questions um but also there are thematic questions do are reporters going to center those horrific abortion stories that can be understood and digested as horrific in a certain category right a, a child who has been raped um, the, some of the stories that we are beginning to see reported about people who, whose water has broken, uh, you know, at a point before viability and who are being sent home because there's still a fetal heartbeat with the risk that they might now eat in what with wanted pregnancies with a risk that they might, um, get infections and in fact become septic. Right. And that uh, where, where the pregnant person's life is in danger. There is a natural gravitation towards some of those stories because on their face, they are the most outright medically chilling and perilous. But what we lose there is the far more common everyday experience of somebody who simply needs or wants to end a pregnancy for any number of reasons. And when you're not telling those everyday stories about just like, you know, a mom of two who doesn't want to have to continue a pregnancy with a third, you know, a third pregnancy, um, you know, and we're not telling that story because it, in some ways a press like a democratic party gives into, a, has already preconceded a frame of sort of good tragic kind of abortion stories and less sympathetic abortion stories, but that seeds so much ground in the fight for human rights and accessible, safe health care. And so how does a press that is new to this story begin to sort out how to cover it in ways that can convey the reality, the varied reality, when there have been so few stories told and the ones that we're now going to be picking are going to wind up being so emblematic and so politically weighted. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think the history of the press telling nuanced, complex story, imperfect stories isn't very good. No, it's it's not at all good. And and it's and it's a real set of fears moving forward. Did you see the um, piece, the, the, the story and the photos that the Times ran from Fort Myers, Florida? Mm -hmm. I did. What did you make of that? Well, I'm always really interested. I don't. I don't necessarily want to want to evaluate a, a photo essay, and because I'm, you know, it's it's so outside my particular line of expertise. But I will say that as somebody who has had a lot of uh, abortion stories illustrated, uh, I am always grateful to see real pictures of what abortion care entails. I mean, you, I'm sure that, that you've thought about and covered this in the past, but 
again, as somebody who has written stories that have, that have been illustrated in the past that it's, it's been such a big problem to convince people to not put pictures of big, almost always white pregnant bellies on the cover of abortion stories where you're like, no, that's, that's actually not the, the illustration here. And I have one very specific, um, experience, a very early column I wrote for New York. Um, I just think of this in terms of how we use photographs. One of my very first columns for New York, it would have been in 2015, was actually about, I think it was about a set of congressional hearings where there were a lot of lawmakers who were reflecting, who were who were sort of trying to send the message to women and people who could become pregnant, like, this is how your reproductive system works. And this is, it was, and I wrote a column um, about how it was silly for these politicians, many of whom were white men, to be sort of lecturing people who could become pregnant about how the reproductive system works. And, you know, it was, I think it was actually probably even, I I haven't read it in a long time, maybe even a funny column about like, we're aware, right? We get it. Periods, blood, like, do you, you know, this is like, (laughs) this is regular life. Um, We're pretty well acquainted with blood. And uh, New York's brilliant photo, photo editor, Jody Kwan, this is again, very early in my employment at New York did the most intense and beautiful art for that column. It was like a one or two page column where she just put blood running through water, like in a toilet, right? Like, but it was just the image of blood running through water right down between the two columns. It was gorgeous and arresting and it was a lot. And my beloved ex-editor, Adam Moss, it was a little too much. (laughs) He was like, no, no. No, we're not doing the blood in the water. And um, we wound up running that column with like the, a boring black and white picture of a congressional hearing. I mean, it, <laughs> it was <laughs> terrible. But, but these are real questions, right? And I say that with, with affection and respect for everybody involved. Um, this has been an issue. And the story that I can speak a little bit to the story that we were talking about that I wrote a couple weeks ago about abortion storytelling, because there are these, how do you illustrate that story? And, um, my a very brilliant photo editor, Megan Peitzhold, Peitzhold at New York, Megan Peitzhold at New York, when we were talking about what, what photograph do we run with this found, uh, a set of photos of people getting, doing self-managed abortions at home. And I was so grateful to her. It was so smart and it was such a remarkable find. And there were, there were ongoing discussions about privacy and peril in terms of, do we show these patients face faces? There were, you know, there are, this is a real question. Are we imperiling the people? These, the, in, in the case that I'm thinking of, the photographs were taken before, the reversal of Roe before the overturn of Roe um, and the people who had consented to be photographed at the time, um, you know, there were images that were wonderful and, and powerful of that involved their faces. And we, you know, there was discussion about not wanting to violate their privacy or imperil them in any way. And so it makes the job of photo editors, um, again, much more complicated because you need to reach out to the photographers and the subjects with real care. Yeah. Um, we ultimately went with a photograph of somebody whose face wasn't visible. And it was a very powerful photograph of a, of a woman on a toilet with her in the midst of a self-managed abortion with a child, you know, 
apparently looking at her through the door. It's interesting that you raise all this because I thought that was an extraordinary picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, and, and, and even before I started thinking this stuff through, I also noticed like the tattoo, if I remember right, on her and mm-hmm. thought, well, that's a that's an identifying thing. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I and I wondered if you guys had thought that through. I can't speak to that. Um, I didn't. It wasn't. I didn't. I can certainly say that that I didn't. Um, and uh, that may be a failing on my part. But um, no, these are real. These are questions. These are questions. But they've always been questions. And I think the photos that we use also speak to something that we're talking about in terms of the photo. In terms of the storytelling. Um, obviously, the photographs are a different kind of storytelling. But the stories that you tell, because there have been so few of them have to carry so much representational weight. Yeah, but that's the problem. That and that but that's where you get these kind of these kind of anecdotes that have to be perfect. They have to be the right kind of person in the right situation with the right kind of drama and that's where you get into trouble, right? And this is and and this is exactly the point I was trying to make in that column about the the damage we have done in not having been more open about these kinds of stories in not having put energy toward trying to show and and this is the media and it is the democratic party and you know the internal critique voiced in that piece is that it's the reproductive rights movement itself in not having been committed to telling fuller richer and more varied stories of abortion over the 50 years in which it was more broadly legal than it is now yeah Rebecca, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you can follow CJR's ongoing coverage of abortion and different state approaches around the country at CJR.org. We'll be covering how this is tracked by the press. You can follow us on our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.